And so this morning, we are going to continue in the book of Ruth, and we're going to be seeing the joy of the restorative aspect in Ruth and Naomi's life. Uh, for those of you that have been traveling with, uh, with us, I thank you for doing that. I'm going to say that as we move into chapter 3, we are at the pivotal sort of transitional portion of the book where things begin to move forward and get better. However, this morning, we are also sort of at a climax portion where there is great risk involved, a great step of faith that is taken by someone whom has gone through great loss and is moving in a direction of trust and faith in someone whom she has trusted in. This is the character of Ruth, essentially moving forward with Naomi, supplying for her needs. Real fast, again, we've been traveling through this book, and to get sort of the context of what's going on, the story of Ruth takes place during the time of Judges. Again, we'll notice that the book of Ruth chronologically comes right after Judges. And that's important to recognize because during this time, during the judges' period, the people of God were really at bay or they were sort of not doing very well with God. It was a dark spiritual time. What we discover in sort of the beginning of the book of Ruth is the people of God are going through a famine and so, Naomi and her husband Elimelech move from Bethlehem, where they reside, to Moab, which is about 50 miles away. But the reason that they do is, is that they are saying, hey, hopefully we can move to an area and supply for our family needs. While in Moab, uh, what happens is that the two sons that uh, Naomi and Elimelech have marry two Moabite women, one being Orpah and the other being Ruth. Life is good. Life seems like everything is going well. They've moved from the famine, they're now in Moab, and life proceeds as normal. What's important also to recognize, though, is that in Moab, they've not gone only from a dark spiritual place with the people of God, they've gone to an even darker spiritual place in Moab. What we recognize is, is that the Moabite people worshipped gods who were very pagan in their actions. Now, I won't go into a lot of detail, but it's going to become important in just a moment to see the response that Boaz has to Ruth, recognizing that in the Moabite culture, worship was done through sexual expression. I'll just leave it there. Interestingly enough, in a moment where we're going to see the provision and the joy of someone who is in the Lord providing for an individual because they know and they love God. We see in the story that life is going well for these individuals, but then great tragedy happens. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, passes away. And we discover and recognize that that is not necessarily a good thing. For those of us today, we need to recognize that in this culture, the provision of a husband was a woman's security, protection, and provision. To lose a husband was very devastating. 
However, what we also see in the story is that there's a fallback. Okay, it's not great to lose my husband, but at least I have my two sons on whom I can rely. The very next sentence, we come to find that both of the sons pass away. And so now we discover that Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth are husbandless. And that's very important to recognize because their situation has gone from essentially provisional to desperate to destroyed. There is no hope. We then travel on and essentially we recognize that Naomi in her wisdom says to the two girls, hey, why don't you go back, find yourselves a husband, a Moabite husband who can provide for you because I am done. I can't do anything for you. And we discover that in that Orpah, and we've heard that the meaning of that word means the back of the neck, essentially listens to Naomi's request and says, okay. And she essentially exits stage right, and she leaves the scene. But Ruth, being a Moabite, says, sort of in the famous words, no, I'm going to go with you. And your people, meaning the Israelite people, the people of God, will be my people, and your God will be my God. And that's a huge step of faith. So she goes with Naomi back to Bethlehem, back to where they came from. We discover that when they get there, individuals who remember Naomi look and they can't believe their eyes. They're like, could this be Naomi? I mean, man, when she left, she had a family. She had everything going on. Everything was fine. And now she is destitute, abandoned, and alone. We then come to find that Ruth goes to glean in a field. You need to remember and recognize that gleaning in a field was a provision made in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, where farmers would essentially, during the time of harvest, allow individuals to glean in the field, and that's basically to pick up the scraps. So after the servants of the farmer had gone through and done the initial harvest, those who were poor, those who were destitute, could come and glean pick up whatever scraps are left. But then we discover that it just so happens, and this is what I love about this story, that Ruth is gleaning in the field of Boaz. And it just so happens that as Ruth is gleaning in the field of Boaz, that Boaz just so happens to be in the field. And it just so happens that Boaz takes notice of Ruth. The reason that we want to talk about that and recognize that is, is in our world, sometimes we think that coincidental things are just happening. Yet what we discover as we look deeper into the story, that it's not coincidence, it's providence. That Ruth, by trusting in God and God's people, is moving in a direction to be provided for by Boaz, who will become her kinsman redeemer and draw her from a position of loneliness, desperation, and abandonment to security, protection, and provision by becoming her husband. 
Now, interestingly enough, that's on a temporal level. But what we also know about this story is Boaz essentially serves as a type of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. We oftentimes can feel alone, abandoned, full of pain, rejected by people. And yet what we discover through Christ is that through his loving kindness, his mercy, his grace, his provision, we move from a desperate position to one of wholeness. But not only wholeness of, hey, great, that's fine, as we discover in this story. You can glean in my field, right? It's one thing for Boaz to say, hey, Ruth, you know, it's, it's fine. You can come, you can glean in the field, but that's it. Just do your thing. You're a Moabite. Don't tell anybody, you know, pick up the scraps. But what we discover is Boaz goes all of these steps further. He says, hey, not only glean in the field, which is getting the scraps, but I want you to move to a position of being with the servants. And really, that's, a, that's an elevated position. Come and be one of the first harvesters. And also, what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to tell the other men in the field that they're not to touch you. Because you have to recognize, too, in a temporal level, a woman particularly not of God's people, could easily have been abused by other men. And so Boaz says, no, no, you're not to touch her. So little by little, he's going above and beyond the standard call of a godly man. What about God for us? What about Jesus for us? What I love are the parallels that you draw in this story. Jesus could have said, okay, that's fine. You can come and glean in my field. You can come and, and you know, I'll give you, I'll give you my scraps, right? But Jesus says, no, I'm going to give you so much more. You outsider. I'm going to turn you from an outsider to an insider, but not only am I going to make you an insider, I'm going to make you the greatest insider of all because you are mine. What we know in the story of Ruth, because we have the joy of looking at it after it occurs, is that Ruth, a Moabite woman, someone who was essentially the opposite of a godly person, through trusting in Naomi and trusting in God's people and in God, moves forward from being a complete outsider, rejected, a gleaner of the field, a loser by all means, Someone in our day who the world would just pass by, would just look and say, yeah, that person's beyond hope. I hope that they get what they get. To someone who is protected, provided, but then blessed, and then unionized through Boaz, who then becomes part of the line of the Messiah. What amazing story of what God does through his mercy, his grace, and his redemptive actions to bring about a story that only he can do. We are at the point now, essentially, in the middle of the book, where Ruth has gone and gleaned in the field. Naomi has recognized that it is Boaz's field. And she is continuing in the harvest. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning in chapter 3. But before we do, I want to take a moment and I want to talk to you about times of taking risk. Has anyone ever taken a great risk before? Anybody out there? See some hands going? 
Okay? I want you to think about that risk. I'm going to take you to my story, um, which was actually several years ago. I was working for a company called Millward Brown International. Uh, I was living about 45 minutes outside of New York City. And what I was doing was I was working for a global ad agency. What we did was we would go and we would work with companies. We would look at their advertisements. We would look at their branding. We would study it and we would go back to them and we would say, this is what you need to do either in your commercials or either in your branding to improve your product. It was a very promising career. There was a lot of opportunity to it. There was a lot of options for advancement, whether it was through global research or you could move into the advertising segment. Very lucrative career. Uh, possibility for international travel and all of these things. And while I loved it, Something in my heart told me that I needed to do something different. Something was telling me that as easy as this life would be, as lucrative as this life would be, that I needed to take a risk. And I remember for several months, I just sat there and I started thinking, and this is for me personally, please hear me, I'm not saying that you all need to come and be a pastor. But I remember sitting there and I said, you know, when I'm 50 years old, is my life going to be all about me and all about what I want and all about provision and, and, and advancement for Trevor? Or is it going to be about doing something for God? And at that point, I didn't know what that meant. But that kept ringing in my heart. Now, fast forward, and long story short, it got to a point where I felt that I needed to go and do something for him. By looking at that and talking to people, it said, well, if you're going to go do something, you should probably go to seminary. So I said, okay. And for whatever reason, the people that were influencing my life, a lot of them were Dallas Theological Seminary grads. So the next thing you know, I said, well, if I'm going to go to seminary, I might as well just throw out an application to Dallas Theological Seminary. And so I did. And I remember filling out the application. And to be honest with you, in love, I felt like I was about a second grader filling out a master's level program. There were all these questions, you know, what have you done in ministry and how have you done this and explain that. And I'm like, uh, I led a Bible study. I want to learn more about God. And there was this final question that it said, how do you know that you are called to be in ministry? And I remember for two months, I just could not answer that question. It's like, I don't know. I, I, you know, haven't had the lightning bolt. I haven't had the, the, the big revelation or whatever. And going back and forth from work, just wondering, and I'm thinking, am I going to finish the application or am I not? Is this something that I should do or I shouldn't do? Anyway, fast forward to the moment, and I just remember, all I could answer was, I don't know, I just feel that I am. And that's what I put in the application. <laughs> okay, I don't know, I just feel that I am. And I sent it off, and I said, well, if I'm meant to be in seminary, I'm meant to be in seminary, and if I'm not, then God has something else for me. Fast forward the day that the envelope came, opened it up, next thing you know, congratulations, you've been accepted to Dallas Theological Seminary. And that's where the rubber met the road. The transition of a great risk 
from a lucrative profession to the complete unknown. And where I'm going is, is through all of this, as we transitioned from Connecticut down to Dallas, moved, did what we needed to do, and as the school started, just a few weeks prior, had the opportunity to return home to my family in Jackson Hole, which several of you know is obviously a place that's very restorative and restful for me. And so it was that moment, that week, where I kind of just finally had the opportunity to kind of see the forest through the trees, clear your head, take some time and pray and say, okay, you know, where, where are we here, God? And uh, I was up in one of the bedrooms, lying down, and that's when everything hit. Holy cow. What have I done? What's going to happen? What are you going to do? And just that fear of taking that risk for God. Some of you might have taken a great risk. But also, some of you might be taking a risk. And while I had the support of family and friends and those around me saying, hey, Trevor, we're behind you, some of you might be going through a situation where you are being called to take a risk and you feel abandoned by friends, family, or those whom are around you. And that's an even more challenging situation. This morning, we're going to ask a question, which is this. How can I take a risk in the midst of life's pain when I feel abandoned by anyone? You don't have to raise your hand this morning. But there might be or there could have been a time in your life or you might be going through something right now where you're sitting there and you feel that God is asking you to do something, but because of a painful situation, either that you are enduring or you have endured, you're saying, how can I do this risk when I feel like there's nobody that's around me? When there's no one that cares? And interestingly enough, what we discover in the story of Ruth is that Ruth and Naomi are sort of clinging to one another and they have each other, but everyone else essentially has abandoned them through death. Orpah, okay, for no real wrong reason, she sort of gets a bad rap. She just listens to Naomi and takes Naomi's advice, leaves. And so it's just the two trying to provide. They go back to Bethlehem. People look and they say, well, you can glean in the field, but I don't know that it's going to work out. And then all of a sudden, as they do, Naomi's going to go to Ruth and ask her to take a great risk, which is what we're going to see here in these first couple of verses of chapter 3. I want to throw this out to you as we ask this question, how can I take a risk in the midst of life's pain when I feel abandoned by everyone? I'm going to stay this statement. You don't have to raise your hand, but this might resonate with some of you. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Emotionally, I'm done. Mentally, I'm drained. Spiritually, I'm dead. Physically, I smile. Put on a happy face. Make everybody think that things are good. Come in. Put that mask on. But yet, deep down inside, you're struggling. Is it, forgive me, is it Matthew West? You know, the song, I'm fine, but I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken, right? How many people sing, sing that? How many people resonate with that right now? Maybe it's today. Maybe it's been in the past. Maybe it'll be in the future. But one of the things that I want to encourage you in is that God sees through that in a loving and caring way. 
one of the things that I want to encourage you in is that in those moments where you've gone through pain, where you feel abandoned, are perhaps the greatest moments and the greatest opportunities to either come to know the Lord or to come to know the Lord. Let me rephrase that again just to help you. In those moments where you're going through a painful situation, perhaps it's an opportunity to come to know the Lord. Maybe the first time that you come to God. But for some of us, maybe we've known God, but we go through another painful situation and it's an opportunity to come to know the Lord. And I'm not elevating people spiritually. I'm not saying that people are higher than others. But I have said through this whole series that some of the individuals that have gone through the most painful situations in life but yet have trusted and turned to God are some of the most rich, blessed, and encouraging people to others that are around them. And that pain actually becomes a testimony to others. Now, I'm not saying, oh great, let's all have a big dose of pain. But when handled appropriately, when handled through the trust of God, it can become an amazing testimony. Ian Voskamp says this, the place where you feel abandoned by everyone is really where God has placed you to be met by someone. Him. Let's just pause on that for a minute. Sometimes where you feel abandoned, when you're going through pain, you feel alone. And please hear me, there's times that I'm well aware that people are around you, they care, they are there for you, but you still feel alone? Has anybody ever been in those situations? Those are the moments where you can be found by someone, and that's him. And as hard and as painful as those situations can be, they are the sweetest, most joyous moments because it's just you and God. And that's what we see through this story. That's what we see through Ruth taking risk, through trusting in God's people and in God. And then what we see is a relationship that occurs where there's great blessing and provision and protection for all. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to turn and we're going to read the first five verses in Ruth chapter 3. Again, what we've seen is now Ruth and Naomi have made their way back to Bethlehem. Ruth has been diligently getting up and trying to find ways to provide for her and for Naomi. We've discovered that she's gleaned in the field. Boaz has taken notice of her and he's moved her from a position of outsider to somewhat of an insider or at least being provided for and she's gleaned and harvested the wheat and barley. We've also discovered that in that she's not just gleaned and had a little bit just for her to kind of get the hunger out, but she's received so much, enough for her and Naomi to be provided for for several months. And don't miss this because on a temporal level, God is taking care. But also on a theological level for us, when we come to God, okay, and we'll use the analogy, and we glean in his field, God comes to us and he says, my son, my daughter, 
I don't want you just to glean. I don't want you just to have the scraps. I don't want you just to have the leftovers. I want to move you to a place of protection and provision in my family and in my kingdom. My son, my daughter, come and eat and be blessed. You are mine. And what we eat and what we have is so much more than the scraps at the table. We have the provision given fully by God. That's where we're at. And time passes and the harvest continues. And now, essentially, the harvest is over. The harvest is complete. And we wonder what's going to occur. Great, the harvest is done. Go do your thing. Figure it out. We're over. Leave me. I've done my duty, possibly, would say Boaz. I've gone above and beyond the call. I've allowed you to come into my field, you Moabitess. I've allowed you to actually be a servant. I've allowed you to come and be part of this field. But that's as far as you may go. And that's where we're at in this story. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz with whose servant girls you have been a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley in the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. We're moving to the climax of the story, and ooh, it's starting to get heated up. It's starting to get very unknown. Very exciting, but also involving great risk. The first thing that I would say in uh, this story, in the first two verses, is, is sort of this understanding that I think we all can agree with, that we all have an innate desire for protection and provision in life. How many of us want to be protected and provided for? I think we'd raise our hands, right? We want to know that we have protection and provision in our world. It's just something that's innate with us. I think we all have a deeper desire in our life, in the chaos that is there, in the unknowns of things, in the as much as we can do for ourselves, to know that despite the ebbs and turns, the unknowns of life, the tragedies that may or may not come before us, that there is something in this world that is ultimately protecting and providing for us beyond what we see today. And I think there's great comfort knowing that in my life, as much as I love it, as much as I feel blessed, as much as I want to protect and provide my fa for my family, as much as I want to be there for them, I'm not trying to be gloom and doom, but there is the reality that that day may not be here. That day may not always continue. But what I also know for me is that despite whatever that might be, there is something greater than I that will always and pr protect and provide for my family when they place their faith and trust in him. And that is my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, my and our kinsman redeemer for those whom believe.
And that brings great joy and great hope to me as I travel through this world. I've said it before. I've said it a hundred times. My prayer, Lord willing, is, is that I'm 95, 110, whatever it might be, and I just decide to go one last shot probably about this time in and around February, because that's when the big snows come to Jackson Hole, that's when the powder's the greatest, and I get off the tram, and I just take my line, and I head skiers left, and I take one shot off of Corbett's, and I just go into glory. Maybe. But I know that no matter what happens in my life, no matter how my end might come, there is one greater who protects and provides for me and provides for us, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. We look into the story, and we see that essentially Naomi is recognizing that the harvest is coming to an end, that the gleaning process, as blessed as it has been, is coming to an end. What's next? Thank you, God, for how you've provided, but I'm looking down the road, and things are going to conclude. What do we do? So Naomi, in her insight, says, you know, we need to find a place, a home for you, hopefully, where you can be provided for. Again, culturally, provision came for females by being essentially part of a male whom was the husband, or, in this instance, a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer, during this time, was a relative who would essentially take the role of redeeming the lost individual's family, providing for them financially, but then also providing for them by name. That's what the kinsman redeemer, or in the Hebrew, the goel, the related person, would become. They would move from essentially not being provided for to being fully provided for by this individual. And so Naomi wisely says, hey, you know, I see that you've been winnowing in Boaz's field. I've seen that he's taken notice of you. And I also know, essentially, from the family that he's in, the group that he's in, that he is a possible kinsman redeemer, a possible suitor. Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Possible opportunity. And so we have this innate desire for protection and provision in life. But yet what we see in a moment is while we have that desire, there are times where it might involve taking a great risk. Verses 3 and 4, we see that sometimes that protection and provision can involve taking a great risk. What are we talking about here? We recognize that as Naomi looks to Ruth, she says, hey, tonight he's going to be winnowing barley in the field of the threshing floor. Harvest is over. Winnowing is a process essentially where after having done the barley harvest, people would go and they would collect their grain uh, this was their financial security, so it was a festive time, but also an important time because what they winnowed and what they had would be what they would be able to use to provide for those that are around them. And so winnowing involved essentially taking the harvested grain and throwing it into the air, and as the air came, sort of the chaff would be lighter and it would blow and separate from the barley, and the barley would fall. That's what was going on. 
This was a joyous time. They were going to be festive. They were going to be celebrated. It was a time where individuals would be happy because the harvest was concluded. Uh, they know that most likely the individual who's responsible for or the owner is going to be there. And so Naomi says, well, let's look at an opportunity. And so we transition into verse 3, wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes and then go down to the threshing floor. Don't miss this, because initially when we read this, we say, well, gosh, maybe Ruth must have just smelled really bad, <laughs> right? Pretty yourself up, which, yes, maybe, but there's something much deeper going on here. That statement right there is a transitional portion where essentially in their culture, Naomi goes to Ruth and says, your time of mourning is done. In the culture of those days, when a woman would lose a husband, they would go through a period of determined mourning. And for an extended period, there would be individuals whom would look and they would say, the period is over or the period continues. And so right in this sentence, there is a change or a transition involving risk that is beginning. When Naomi says to Ruth, wash, she is saying, your time of mourning your past husband is over. You can move now and you are in a position of putting yourself available to a suitor. What does that mean? Am I ready? What will happen? Will there be? Will anyone care? I wonder what was going through Ruth's mind when she heard that. I'm done? What about my past? What about my future? Where do I go? What do I do? Sometimes protection and provision can involve great risk. We continue on and we find out, not only does she say to wash yourself and put on your best clothes, but go down to the threshing floor. Don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. It's interesting because there's multiple things that are going on here. During this time, during this festive time, as people would essentially thresh and winnow the barley and the wheat, there would be multiple individuals involved in that process. It would be dark. There would be people potentially around, and there would be other males. Now, I'm going to try to say this as discreetly as possible, but there's really no discreet way to say this, but this is a potential for disaster. In this culture, for a woman to go and lie down, I'll just leave it there, is moving to a position of complete vulnerability to be abused or rejected or utilized in an unwholesome way by an individual. Don't miss what's going on here. But it's also an opportunity for someone to say, I am here, I am yours, 
and I will be yours if you will have me. That's what's happening here. And so there's careful words given by Naomi to Ruth, who's number one saying, your time of mourning is over. Make yourself perfumed and go and look for Boaz. Wait until he's done eating and drinking and he is asleep. Note the place where he lies down. Okay, don't miss this. Because you are to go and you are to lie at his feet. I don't want to go too far in this because I don't want our minds to wander too much, but this is, this is like a movie scene where it's like, mm, this could get interesting. And Ruth is taking a great risk because the scenario could go very well or it could go very, very wrong. The ways that it could go wrong is, number one, she could lie down with the wrong person next to the wrong person. Whoa, whoa, sorry. Right? We'll leave it at that. But she could even go to Boaz and lie at the right place. And Boaz could wake and say, what are you doing here? He could say, what are you doing here? And where I'm going with this is, what I love about this story is in a moment you will see two individuals, and don't miss this because we're going to talk about it theologically, but we're also going to talk about it temporally. Two individuals put in a situation that in our culture and in the culture of their day, everyone would expect essentially what? What always happens in our TV shows to occur. But two individuals who remain obedient to what they've been told. And one individual who's in the driver's seat who remains completely unmorally compromised because he loves his Lord before he loves himself, and that is Boaz. What we'll see later, and that's the next sermon for next Sunday, is Boaz will actually go to Ruth and know she's made herself available. I could say, I don't want you. I could take advantage of the situation for my own personal desire. She laid down with me. I'm kinsman. I'm the owner of the field. I could just do what I want to do, and there we go. But he doesn't. He actually loves his Lord to the point where he says... To be honest with you, there's another kinsman who's closer in line than I am. And if that's what God wants, because that's God's law, then may it be so. And I wonder what Boaz's desire is at the point when he comes to discover that Ruth is now available. Ruth takes this risk. This risk of, am I going to be completely rejected? Am I going to be essentially arrested or stoned? Am I going to be used and abused and then thrown away? Or am I going to be protected and provided for by this kinsman redeemer? Sometimes we have to take a great risk. Francis Chan says this, If you want to see the big stuff that God has... You've got to take some risk and trust 
only in the gospel. Sometimes in our life, God might move us in a time of either pain or unknown or whatever it might be to take a great risk for him. And that is where you need to move and trust in the gospel. Ruth, in this instance, says, I don't know what's going on in my life, but your people will be my people and your God will be my God. What a great risk that she takes. She trusts in, essentially, the gospel. And so she moves, and we see in verse 4, When he lies down, know the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. It's interesting. There's all kinds of commentary sort of on the uncovering of the feet. Uh, a couple of things that I'll sort of involve in it. Number one, okay, I don't know about you, but um, particularly this morning, this is kind of a good reference. How many of you were nice and snuggled in bed, right? Anybody? How many of you would want the covers of your feet to be unraveled in the middle of the night? I don't know about you, but I like my feet. You guys want that? Okay. So there's some over here. That's fine. I'm the kind of person, I want my feet to be nice and warm. Okay? I'm also the kind of person that most likely, if the covers are pulled off on my feet, I'm going to wake up. Okay? So possibly, it's just that hey, this was just a way to, to, to get him up, okay? Just one of those things where you roll back the covers and this is a way to wake him up. Other commentators would say that it's kind of the um, submissive representative aspect of I'm here and I'm putting myself available to show you that I am interested, for lack of a better word. Um... The challenge, and I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I don't want to take that too far. Because it's not, I'm available for, and I, I, for fun. Okay? I'm just, I'm trying to, I mean, this is a hard situation. I was thinking about praying about it. I'm like, ooh, this is going to be fun to preach today. Okay? This is a very uh, sensual potential situation that Ruth is putting herself in. But it's also a submissive position that Ruth is saying, I'm here. And what I love, as we'll see in a moment, is Boaz, Boaz acts wholly appropriate and moral in this situation. Sideshow, just real fast, I got a slide over. Ladies, this is the kind of guy that you're looking for. Guys, this is the kind of guy that you want to be. This is the kind of guy that you want to be. Because in a world right now where all the TV shows would end with, and I won't even take our minds there, but we know how they go. This is the countercultural way that it goes. And yet what we see in it, that by the two of them, one honoring God, Ruth, and trusting, the other loving God and honoring him above his own needs, move to a position of risk and unknown, yet by being obedient to God and trusting in him, later on move to a fruitful and blessed relationship. Okay? So, side note, but very applicable in a temporal level. 
Theologically speaking, I won't go too far in this, but I think it's also a picture of our God. Not in a sensual way, but in the aspect that times, has anybody wanted to go to God and wanted to be protected and provided by him, but you wonder, is God going to accept me? Anybody feel that way? Is God going to really love me, or is he going to reject me? Or is God going to essentially say, yeah, whatever, you know, get, get out of here. Sometimes we wonder about the risk that it might take to go to God and say, God, I need you. I need your protection. I need your provision. I need your guidance. I need your direction. I'm lost. I'm hurting. I'm lonely. And we wonder the response that God will give. And what I love is, is that the response given by Boaz is essentially mirroring. Now, Boaz is not Jesus, but it's mirroring the character of Jesus who lovingly provides and protects for us in the best way possible. Sometimes we have an intimate desire for protection and provision in life. And sometimes that protection and provision can involve taking a great risk. But as we see in verse 5, it is in those moments that our job is to trust and remain obedient to Christ. What does Ruth do? I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. I'll do, Naomi, I'll do whatever you say. I trust you. I trust you, I trust your people, and I trust your God. I'll do whatever you say. Sometimes when we take risk, one of the things we need to assess is how obedient and trustworthy do we want to be toward God. Despite the unknown. Now, I don't know about you, but I would love to say, God, I want to take the risk, but just show me where I'm going to end up before I actually take that step, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? But don't we walk by faith and not by sight? And yet in those moments where we walk by faith, as we've walked by faith, we see more clearly. Maybe not temporally, but spiritually we see our Savior Jesus all the much more in the clear. And his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his protection, and his provision to us. You might be in a moment right now of great hurt, of great pain, of great unknown, great challenge, of great wonder. God might be asking you to take a risk, and I don't know what that risk may or may not be, but my loving encouragement to you in this is to recognize that when you turn to God in trust and in faith, and you look to him to lead God and direct your life, whatever that risk might be will come to great fullness. Caveat. In him, not always in life. I don't want this to be something where you think, if I just simply trust in God, that everything that I want, need, and desire is going to be fine. Okay? Maybe. But I don't want you thinking, all i got to do is trust more in Jesus, and then I'm going to be rich. Right? Or all my problems are going to go away. But what I can tell you is this. When you do trust in Jesus, you are rich. You are rich. In his kingdom. 
and with his inheritance and with his blessing in eternity that will never, ever end. So don't fall for the prosperity portion of the gospel, but fall for the redemptive portion of the gospel, which draws us to him with a rich inheritance in our king throughout his kingdom in an eternity in heaven. Rick Warren says this, your most profound and intimate experiences of worship will likely be in your darkest days. When your heart is broken, when you feel abandoned, when you're out of options, when the pain is great, and you turn to God alone. There's risk even in that statement. God, I'm all out of options. The pain is too great. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. And all I can do is turn to you. Are you there? Do you care? Will you redeem me? Will you provide for me? Will you protect me? Will you not allow me to feel abandoned? Will you not abuse me? Will you not use me? And God says, my child, my daughter, come to me. You are mine, and I will provide for you in ways that you can't possibly fathom. I love you, and I adore you, and you will always be mine. And that's what we see and will see as the story progresses with Ruth and Boaz. What I love about this, and the reason that I stopped here, is I want to create the tension of the unknown because we're still not there yet. Ruth has sort of moved forward. Boaz is going to take notice. Boaz is going to honor God. And next week, I'll give you a little bit of an insight to what's going on. Ruth's going to say, well, I've made it, and I've made that advance. But now, you know what? I don't know who my husband's going to be. Because what happens is Boaz says, there's another in line before me. So she knows Boaz. She recognizes Boaz. It looks like it's going to be him, but then there's an even greater risk where she says, now I've taken that step of faith, and I'm actually possibly in a worse position because I trusted, and now... I could get a husband that I don't even know. Maybe I shouldn't have ever taken that risk. But God, as we will see later, in his sovereign grace, in his sovereign restorative way, brings about a union that only he can do. Through life's pain, to the restorative aspect of mercy and grace, through the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. For us, through our kinsman redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How can I take a risk in the midst of life's pain when I feel abandoned by everyone? First and foremost, we recognize that we have an intimate desire and an innate desire for protection and provision in life. Yet sometimes, protection and provision can involve taking a great risk. It's in those moments that our job is to trust in and remain obedient to Christ. And sort of the summative statement of this that at times, the take home truth that in times in our life we might be asked to take great risks our job is to trust in and remain obedient to Christ 
because he will not let us down. God will not let you down. I can promise that. I can stand with confidence before you today with that. I don't know what your life might be, but I know that God will not let you down, and I know he will not let me down either. And that is a great aspect of protection and provision through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is our kinsman, Redeemer. Let's take a moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to continue on. The story is going to get even more interesting before it finally resolves itself. But the resolution, the joy, the sweetness is in chapter 4 where we recognize, holy cow, God, only you could put together such an amazing story. Holy cow, follow me on this. <laughs> holy cow, God, right? Only you could put together such an amazing story through our Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We just want to thank you for you. We thank you for everyone that has made uh, the, the trip this morning in this cold weather. Uh, we do pray for those that could not be with us today for whatever reason. And we pray your hand of blessing upon them. Lord, we just continue to pray for your leading, guiding, and direction of our church as we continue to seek to be salt and light for you to the community that is around us. Lord, I pray that as we look at the book of Ruth, that it would just encourage our hearts. There's so much in this on a temporal level, um, but on a theological level or a spiritual one as well. It's such a rich, rich book. Father, help us not to elevate Boaz above Christ, because Christ is our true Redeemer. But Father, help us to look at Boaz as a character and his example and recognize, Lord, for lack of a better word, help us to be a Boaz in our day. But thank you for our true Redeemer, our Savior Jesus Christ. Father, with that, we pray that whatever situation we might be in, we might be going in or we might have come out of, that when we feel alone or abandoned or we're going through something painful and we wonder where you are, that we would be reminded that you are right there with us, that you love us with an everlasting love, that we are your child, your son, your daughter, when we've placed our faith and trust in you. Father, I pray today that if there's anybody out there that doesn't know you, that perhaps this morning by seeing your love as displayed through the restoration of Ruth via Boaz, that they would recognize, too, that there's a restorative aspect through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that is oh so similar to the story that we see here. That when we feel alone, when we feel not right, when we feel not of sort of the right people, that we can go from being an outsider to an insider through the restoration of our Savior Jesus Christ because he's gone to the cross on all of our behalves to forgive us of our sins so that we might have eternal life. Father, I pray too that perhaps maybe we're wondering, well, can I trust this God? Is he there? Does he really care? And after I go and make that step, take that risk, take that level of faith, what will he do? Will he just say, great, and then leave me? Will I just be left on my own? That as we continue to read in the story of Ruth, that we realize that not only will he take us, but he will wrap his armors around us wholly. Not only will he wrap his arms around us wholly, but he will restore us in his loving kindness. 
Not only will we be protected and provided for in a temporal way, but we will be protected and provided for in a spiritual way as well, beyond our wildest dreams. Father, for those of us that know God, I pray that as we look at the story of Ruth, we would come to know God more. We're not in an intellectual way, not in a, a way to elevate ourselves above other people, but that we would just recognize the sweetness and the joy and the love and the blessedness of our Savior Jesus Christ. That we worship a God who desires to protect and provide for his people, to bless and be. And Father, with that, may that encourage our hearts not only to trust in you more, but to go out and tell other people about this great God of whom we serve. Father, at times in our life, when we're asked to take great risk, help us to remember and recognize that our job is to just trust in and remain obedient to you because we know that you will not let us down. Go before us this week. Lead God and direct our thoughts. Father, help us to be salt and light for you to those that are around us. Thank you for this time to come together and worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.